0: We continue this morning in Hebrews for second week. Hebrews is a beautiful and it's a poetic letter to the early church. And since this letter is written to a Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, the writer is making a theological case for what transpired when Jesus died on the cross. Our passage begins with a theological explanation of the sacrifice and what it means for us. And it ends with talking about the church and what it means to be the church in the world. And I invite you to read with me in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11 this morning. It says, And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, I will write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching." The writer of Hebrews is in the midst of making a theological case for what has happened. Jesus died on a cross. What does this mean? He says Jesus is like the high priest above any high priest that ever worked at the temple. Except this high priest, instead of standing at the temple and sacrificing animals, he sacrificed his very life. Excuse me, I've got a little short happening here in my microphone this morning. He sacrificed his very life, and there is no greater sacrifice than to give one's life. It's good to keep in mind that the separation of Judaism and Christianity was not something that happened overnight. They didn't just become two distinct religions. After all, Jesus was Jewish, Uh, early Christians were largely Jewish, Uh, the disciples were Jewish, And the separation between Judaism and Christianity into two distinct religions was a gradual process, sometimes painful, that happened over generations. And so, in the early days of the church, there were real questions of just how Jewish Christians should look. What day of the week the Sabbath should be kept? Uh, Should there be circumcision and dietary codes? And what about sacrifices in the temple? These were questions that need to be figured out, and some even surmise that the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter in a way to encourage Jewish Christians who might be tempted to go back to their Jewish roots to escape the persecution that was happening to early Christians. Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus' sacrifice was for all sins, for all time and places, When Jesus' death on the cross, the author explains it was something new. The new covenant that we speak about in the Lord's Supper. That this sacrificial system of sins and penance that was happening at the temple need not be any longer. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by new and living the way he opened us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus he speaks about the curtain being torn in two we remember on good friday when jesus breathed his last the curtain at the temple that separated the holy of holies the most sacred place was torn and now he says jesus is the curtain By through his flesh that we enter into this space, the most sacred part, that this new thing that God was doing, that Jesus' sacrifice of his own body was for all times and places. Now, I wanted to give you just a brief little historical detour here about the relationship of Judaism and Christianity. Maybe you've wondered, you know, Jews today are not still making sacrifices for sins or penance in temple, and that is a very specific reason for that because the Torah scripture says that animal sacrifices like that are only to happen in the temple. And the temple was destroyed in the year 70 by Romans when the Jews tried to revolt against them, they responded by punishing the Jews by destroying their temple in Jerusalem. There's still remnants of it today. But that ushered in a new practice within Judaism of no more animal sacrifices. But this this separation between Judaism and Christianity was such a long process. And in verse 23, the writer begins to switch gears after talking about what Jesus' death on the cross meant, after talking about the sacrifice and forgiveness of sins, He begins to speak about what it means to be the church. He says, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. There's a little side note there. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Provoking one another to love and good deeds. Encouraging one another. In other words, this is what it means to live out Jesus' life and sacrifice. Provoking one another to love, encouraging one another, and good deeds. This is church. I love how he says it. To provoke one another to love. When's the last time someone provoked you to love? I can think about when someone provoked me to anger or annoyance, but provoked to love. To be inspired by it, to witness it, to want to be more loving because of seeing that. Do you remember this little controversy that happened, a few, I think maybe five or six years ago? It was all over the news. Uh, Starbucks changed their Christmas time mugs or cups. They went from having snowflakes and reindeer on them to just being a plain color red, and people lost their minds. All kinds of controversy, there was talk. There was so much talk about this. And the thing about it is, at the time, I remember, as I was watching everybody comment on this, I couldn't help but realize, if we want a billion-dollar corporation to define our faith, if a snowflake on a red cup defines Christmas to us, then we are in trouble. We're in trouble. Because Hebrews reminds us that it starts and ends with us in our lives. Provoke one another to love. Encourage each other. It starts with us. And you know what? Maybe it's easier to worry about what a corporation has on their cup than to spend time looking at our own lives and wondering if anyone will ever see Jesus in us, in our lives, in our church, in our community. That's why we come here. That's why we come to this place, church. That's why we come here. And I pray, I hope you find it here to be strengthened for the journey in your life, to find encouragement through hard and challenging seasons, to be stirred to hope when the news makes you want to choose despair, to sing songs of faith that stir you and inspire you when words cannot. And to even learn, frankly, how to be community when we disagree with one another every now and then. To be provoked to love, as Hebrews says it. Provoked to love and good deeds, to encourage one another. I pray that you find it here in this space. And I know what it means. To be provoked to love, and I believe that you do too. I know what it means to be provoked to love because I see it week and week out in all of your lives. And I have witnessed it in my life of being raised in the church, my whole life. I have seen it in so many ways. From my own childhood, I remember a woman in my church, Miss Sarah who gave me a little address book that I still have to this day. And she stuck her address in it and she wrote a little note beside it that said, send me a card every now and then and tell me of your adventures. And the thing about Miss Sarah is that she had one child, Cindy, who was severely disabled, physically, cognitively disabled, and she dedicated her life to taking care of her and making sure Cindy had a good life. And when she died, when Cindy died in her Early 30s, I remember Miss Sarah saying it was the greatest gift of her life to have been her mother. And I remember how the church just doted on a kid named Chad, who was my age, when he lost his finger in a farming accident. And that kid was inundated with presents and cards and balloons and signs that I secretly wondered if Chad wasn't so sad about losing that finger after how many presents he got. The church did that for him. I remember standing in the back of a sanctuary of a longtime pastor of a church, and Reverend Glenn, and we were talking about a memorial in the back that I asked him about, and he told me it was actually for someone... Um, a young man in his church that had died during his college years and he was tearing up while he was talking about it to me and I remember being astounded seemed like a long time to me back then 15 years he'd been gone and he was still crying over missing him and you know his parents his parents kept his car their son's car in mint perfect condition a convertible and on really warm sunny days they would drive it to church And every time they drove it, after church, people would gather around and talk about that car and remember their son. The church, the church did that. Uh, There was a kid in Tennessee, good kid, first started coming to our youth group. Before you know it, he was there every Sunday. He's practically raising himself, really. Um, Good kid, though. But he didn't have much support, and when he graduated and made plans for college. Um, After one year, one of his funds that he was counting on went away, and it was the church that made sure he stayed in school. The church paid that bill to make sure he was still in college. And I remember a mission trip I took in college to go uh, work on houses in a holler in eastern Kentucky. And we painted houses all week, and at the end of the week, one of the adults on the trip uh, took time to take a paint chip from the house we scraped off and, and had, it, had it clear taped so we each had a piece of the paint that we had worked on getting off that house all week and when he gave a piece of the paint to each of us, he said remember that this is the work of the kingdom remember this is the work of the kingdom it's been over 20 years since that trip and I still remember what he said to us that day. Provoke one another to love. Provoke one another to love, it says. I have seen it, I've lived it. When my 16 year old cousin died, tragically in a car wreck, there was a crew from my church sitting in the back rows that had driven four hours just to come to that funeral. Provoke one another to love. That's the church. It's who we are. It's who we're called to be in the world. And being community together isn't always easy. It's always imperfect, sometimes messy. In fact, it's never as smooth as a Starbucks peppermint latte. But I tell you what, tell you what, the church knew, the early church understood. That because of what happened on that cross, because of that saving act of sacrifice, because he offered his life for all times and all places and all people, because of his death and all that would come after, because he lives, it matters. And your life, your life is the only evidence of that truth. Amen.